Turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 109. One hundred nine, verse four, is where he's God. Christ says, "I'm in prayer," and that's kind of going to be the theme, which is why we look liturgically at um, the shorter catechism. But I'm going to read a little bit more from Psalm one hundred nine, and um, then I have a second reading from Luke chapter twenty-three. Psalm one hundred nine. What I'll do is. I'll read from verse 1 to verse 13. But again, that verse 4, the prayer of David or the Spirit of Christ speaking through David, David as a prophet here, we're going to look at the prayer of Christ. Psalm 109, hear God's holy word. For the choir director, a psalm of David, O God of my praise, do not be silent, for they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They've surrounded me with words of hatred. They fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I am in prayer. Thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Verse 6. Appoint a wicked man over him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let... Another take his office, let his children be fatherless, his wife a widow, let his children wander about and beg, let them seek sustenance far from their ruined home, let the creditor seize all that he has, let strangers plunder the product of his labor, let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor any to be gracious to his fatherless children, let his posterity be cut off, in a following generation let their name be blotted out." And, and then what I'd like to do is I would like to read uh, Luke chapter 23. Uh, chapter 23. I'm going to read from verses 24 to 37. In what I just read in this particular psalm, I think this particular psalm finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in the experience of Jesus Christ praying, particularly in praying for his enemies, which is what I want to read from Luke 23 while he's being crucified um, on the cross. Luke 23, verse 24. Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted, the demand of the Jews to crucify Christ and, and to release Barabbas instead of Christ. And he released the man that they were asking for who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. When they led him away, they seized the man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will say to us, Say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. If they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. 
The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Let's pray. Lord God, what, um, <clears throat> what a terribly convicting passage this is, Lord. Um, we, are, we, we are natural born sinners, Lord. We are the ones uh, that were sneering at you. What an amazing God you are, Lord Jesus. What amazing love you have, what amazing mercy, kindness, patience. And it's your love and kindness and patience that um, converts us. We thank you for that. Cause us to see the truth of your word, both the difficult portion in, in Psalm uh, 109, and even the forgiveness of, of these wicked sinners, even this is to some degree perplexing. Help me, Almighty God. Help us all. Glorify your name. Amen. I have um, two purposes tonight. From This is a, a series, Finding Christ in the Psalms. I think it's 18 or 19 sermons that I have planned, and this is something like uh, the 13th sermon, somewhere thereabouts. And so my, my, my two purposes are this. I want to explain the two kind of prayers that we find Jesus Christ making, and I'll just reference that for us and then get into it in the body of the sermon. He makes an imprecatory prayer, and then he makes a prayer of forgiveness. And I want to explain both of those two things. And then the other thing I I want to do is I want to spend a little bit more time towards the end unpacking Christ's prayer of forgiveness for his enemies. And he prays this prayer um, in the very act of his enemies crucifying him. So those are the purposes. To explain and maybe reconcile a little bit the notion of an imprecatory prayer in conjunction with a prayer of forgiveness, which we, we would consider more normative, at least more understandable, the, the prayer of forgiveness. And then we'll spend a little bit of time unpacking what that means when Christ prays and perhaps make some application for us as Christians. The explanatory note, back in Psalm 109, if you look at verses 1 through 5, If we stopped at verses 1 through 5, particularly 4, you see in this, this is the psalmist David. He's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of Christ. This is the first Peter chapter 1, 10 through 13. Uh, As prophets, they had the Spirit of Christ proclaiming the Christ who was to come, both the sufferings and the glories. So ultimately, this is not the word, these are not the words of ultimately, ultimately the words of King David. These find their true fruition in the in the mouth of David's son and David's Lord Christ. But if we stop to just first verse five, if you knew your Bible, you would immediately go to to, uh, to Luke twenty three. You would immediately go to um, my God, uh, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But, but the difficult part is when you come to verse six to the end, and so we have David praying. He's praying. Because he's in intense anguish over his enemies. And in the context, they're enemies of David because David belongs to the Lord. Because David is God's man. And so they hate him. So in our secondary standard, how is Christ a king? Christ is a king in that he subdues us to himself. He rules and reigns over everything. 
And he puts down, he conquers, he, um, he, he restrains all of our enemies and all of his enemies, but our enemies for his sake. And that's what's going on. David is being abused for his, um, <clears throat> his faith, as it were. This is a John chapter 15. Jesus says, as they treat me, the worldling, the unbeliever, will treat you because you belong to me. And so he prays. He receives all of this rebuse, and then the reflex of his faith is to pray. <clears throat> now, I do find that to reach its, as I say, zenith in Christ. Here is Christ the, receiving the absolute pinnacle of satanic hatred in Christ's recourse as he prays. That's why I read Luke 23. Now, I want to spend some time talking about this imprecatory uh, prayer because that's what we find from verse 6. If you're, if, you're not, if you're not used to reading your Bible, and of course it's, there's a few folks here and I'm assuming that everyone in this room reads their Bible and that you're acquainted with the Bible. And what I mean is from Genesis to Revelation, don't skip over any parts. There are harder parts. I understand Chronicles... There are parts that we're tempted to skip over because they appear difficult. And especially these harder passages from chapter six, verse 6 onwards, this imprecatory part, this is a harder, this is a harder concept. And our flesh is, is less inclined to read it because it's frightening. And in a way, I think it's, it's meant to be frightening. But I, w- I would gently suggest don't skip over any parts of the Bible. Don't even teach your children to skip over any parts of the Bible. The Bible says about the Bible, all of it's written for our instruction. And so this is here. And the reason I'm kind of giving that pastoral application is sometimes there are real Christians, and I'm not doubting their Christianity, that they they know Christ, they love the gospel, they can explain the gospel, they believe the gospel. But there are chunks of things, truths about God they simply don't know. They, they are almost self-willed in their ignorance, and this is one aspect of it. And then if you ask them, does God ever treat people this way? Does, is there such a thing as an imprecatory prayer? And they would answer no. And I, I just had in a very recent experience with a person said, well, God loves everyone equally. And I had this person read Romans chapter 9. Jacob I loved, Esau I what? That's exactly right. And the person said, I, ne- I, never, I never knew this. This kind of changes things for me. Y- yes, I, I don't want to perplex people, but this is a part of God's word, and it's better to, to face it and then to pray for God the Holy Spirit to help us understand it than to say this is not an aspect of God's nature, which of course it is. Imprecatory means cursing or condemning. That's what it means. Imprecatory prayers, imprecatory statements are cursing or condemning statements against the wicked man, anoint a, appoint a wicked man over him. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Who does that refer to? Let another person take his office, the enemy of, this, of Christ. This is Acts chapter, is it Acts chapter 1? Acts chapter 2? Um, they said, let another take his office, which is Judas. And so Judas is called the the son of perdition, John chapter 17. Judas is called the son of damnation. So 
all of these things reach their final conclusion in the person of Christ and the work of Christ. So this is an imprecatory prayer made by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I do. I will try to prove that Christ will also likewise uh, condemn his enemies, at least uh, on one particular day. Now, when you think of an imprecatory statement, sometimes well-meaning Christians say something like this. Well, in the Old Testament, you had these kind of statements, these imprecatory statements. But when you come to the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't contain those kind of statements. So they think like this. God treats people one way, which is more severe and harsher under the Old Testament, they think. And then in the New Testament, God changes up his methodology towards people, and he's markedly gentler and markedly kinder. Have you ever heard of a fellow called Marcion? Marcion lived in something like AD 85 to like AD, I don't know, like 150, something like that. He, he was a heretic. I only use the word heretic for something large. It strikes at the essence of God, the divinity of Christ. I don't use heretic for small theological, doctrinal, practical sins or errors. I don't. Heretic is someone that strikes at a fundamental of the faith. So Marcion said like this. He would come to a passage like this and say, oh, The Spirit of Christ is praying essentially to damn someone. Or God here is is inspiring David to to want God to damn someone. And then Christ on the cross is praying for mercy. And so Marcion concluded this. Well, the reconciliation is this. There are two gods, not one God. There's the God of the Old Testament, and he's very mean, vitriolic, judgmental, harsh, unloving. And then there's the God of the New Testament, He's very kind and benevolent and gentle and so on. Lord, that's not true. I understand why a person may conclude that, but that's not true. The Bible interprets the Bible. Shema, O Israel, the Lord thy God is what? One. He's one. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Same God. If you read the book of Hebrews, it says, if people received a severe treatment by God, for trampling on the law of Moses, how much more severe in the new epoch, in, with the coming of Christ, the trampling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's, it, in a way, it's the opposite of what people conclude because we live in an epoch with greater revelation, so too much is given, much is required. But So people would come here and say, there are no imprecatory statements in the New Testament. That's not true. I want to read a couple. And all we're doing is trying to set the stage to reconcile how does God make imprecatory prayers, or God in Christ make imprecatory prayers, and then at the same time, um, in a different time, excuse me, does he pray for forgiveness? That's what I'm hoping to reconcile. Here are a couple of New Testament passages. Um, There are a few, and when I say a few in the New Testament, I only know of like three or four. I'm going to give us two. 1 Corinthians 16 This is the last chapter of the first epistle. All the brothers greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. And then he says, Maranatha. That means, Lord, come. The accursed word that he uses here in Greek is anathema. It means essentially condemned by God, condemned by God to hell, anathema. 
If anyone doesn't love the Lord, let them be accursed, anathema. And then he says, uh, Maranatha, come Lord. That's an imprecatory statement. The, the other one is found in the book of Galatians. I, I, I had so much more in the morning sermon, but I, I think the Holy Spirit restrained me, which I'm thankful for. But our passage this morning from Acts chapter 15 is in reference to the Galatian heresy. And you see the Galatian heresy in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 5 especially. But in chapter 1 of the Galatians, they're, 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 they're corrupting the gospel. They're adding works, circumcision to, to, to belief in Christ, and then obedience to the, uh, to the moral law in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, which wrecks the, the gospel. That's, that's law, not gospel. And so God the Holy Spirit inspires the Apostle Paul to say this in Galatians. I am amazed that you so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. It's not a gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ by adding law. Even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, faith in Christ alone, Christ purchases 100%, he is to be accursed, anathema. As we have said before, I say to you again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be anathema. That's an imprecatory statement. So imprecatory statements, condemning, cursing statements, there are some in the Old Testament. There are very few in the New Testament. And I want to give a word of pastoral application. There are some well-meaning Christians of a particular stripe, and usually they have a particular constitution. I don't want to say they hold a particular eschatological position, but maybe I could classify it, maybe more post-millennial, maybe more reconstructionist post-millennial that are inclined to imprecatory prayers. Um, And you'll hear them. God, um, damn the sinner, damn these people. God, pour out your curses upon these kind of people, and so on. Our brother George referenced in the sermon this in, in the the liturgy this morning, our poor country, our poor country, we we almost don't go a week without a, a mass shooting. Almost a week. I will be fifty nine in August. I there, this was this did not happen when I was a child. This just did not happen, and I'm not saying in the good old days. There were no mass shootings. I don't know when the first one I heard was maybe a guy on a, a college tower in Iowa or Ohio when maybe it was when I was in college. It was like the first. And then it never again for the next. But it, 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 it's weekly. And so you'll hear men who are inclined to say, and oh God, we're thankful that you've exacted your justice on the shooter and now he's damned and so on. I will, I will say this. I will say this. I'm not saying there's never a time to, to pray an imprecatory prayer. I'm not saying that. I just gave us two instances, actually three from Psalm 109, and two from the New Testament where God did inspire penmen to, to write and pray imprecatory prayers. And as we read from our secondary standard, the whole Bible is a guide for our prayer. So I'm not saying... There's never a time, but I will say this. Be extremely careful 
If you are tempted to pray in a precatory prayer against one of your enemies or against a perceived enemy of Christ's church, be very, very careful. And when you say, well, Pastor Paul did, I understand. The two prayers and precatory statements I just read, Paul was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is what that means. It didn't come from Paul's flesh. When Paul was not being inspired to preach and to speak and to write scripture, he still had the flesh. That means he sinned and erred just like us when he was not inspired. And so here he's infallible and his statements of cursing are infallible. The reason I want us as Christians to exercise caution against praying in imprecatory prayers against our enemies or against the enemies of Christ, we have the flesh. We we, we, We are very good, I include myself, we are very good at dressing up our carnal enmity and worldly or fleshly hatred of another human being and disguising it with righteous indignation. Does that make sense? I'm so offended for the cause of Christ. May God damn you to hell because you're Christ's enemy. No, no. You're mad at this person because they did something to you that you didn't like and you desire bad things to happen to them. It has nothing to do with the vindication of Christ's honor or any of that. And we're all, I, I include myself. I include myself. Is there such a thing as righteous anger? Yes, yes. There is such a thing as godly anger. But beloved, be very careful with that. Be very careful. You remember James and John. I referenced it this morning. Sons of thunder. They could have passed a lie detector test. Oh God, should we call down fire from heaven and destroy and damn these two enemies of yours, Jesus? And who did Jesus correct? His friends or his enemies? His friends. So yes, there are are, are imprecatory statements. Be be very careful. I am inclined to, I have heard, I maybe have prayed a few myself. I've heard other people pray, pray them. I almost never believe that it doesn't come from the flesh, which I mean, man, we should be careful with these statements because our flesh is so insidious. Now, when we have an imprecatory prayer, as we do in Psalm 109, and then we look at Luke 23, where Jesus prays to forgive the sins of his enemies, this is where the unbelieving antagonist, the enemy of the Lord Jesus, whether they're inside of the church or outside of the church, um, we looked at the enemies of Christ inside of the church at the Jerusalem Council this morning. We'll talk more about that next Lord's Day, um, not for me, but in a couple Lord's Days for me. Um, but when we come here, the, the unbeliever says, well, he, here, here is one of the contradictions that the Bible contains, and therefore they conclude that the Word of God is not the Word of God. The Bible is not the infallible in the spirit inspired. It's filled with all sorts of mistakes and errors and contradictions. You've heard this before. The unbeliever says, well, the Bible is not the spirit-breathed, infallible, perfect, uh, errorless book. It's filled with lots of errors. And they would couple that with contradictions. And they would come here and go, well, here we have a prayer for divine justice, 
for condemnation on some enemy, some sinner. Then we have Christ praying for, for divine forgiveness on, uh, 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 on his enemies. And so they conclude praying for justice and praying for forgiveness are mutually exclusive and they're contradictory. Therefore, the word of God is not the word of God. Does that make sense? That is one of the reasons why unbelievers say they don't believe in the Bible or the God of the Bible. And the reason I'm emphasizing the word say is this. The unbeliever, properly speaking, does not really understand his or her own unbelief. I'm not saying they're dullards. There are a great many very, very, very sharp intellectually gifted unbelievers. What I mean is this. They're deaf, dumb, blind, and dead. And they can't see. They don't know. So when they say, I don't believe for these reasons, for these contradictions, even that's not true. They're not able to assess their own unbelief properly. The ultimate reason why the unbeliever says, this is, an imper- this is a contradiction, therefore the Bible's not true, it's not intellect. It's, it's, it's spiritual. They're dead in their sins and their trespasses. Read Romans 8, verse 7. They cannot understand. This is one of the reasons why I, under, I argue the older I get, I think I'm understanding a little bit more. When we deal with an unbeliever, we should be long-suffering and patient and gentle and kind rather than trying to beat them into faith. You can't, unless the Holy Spirit opens their eyes. They cannot. You cannot come to me. They cannot understand. I'm not saying their their free agency is not involved. It is. It's perplexing to me. I can't resolve the sovereignty of God and the free agency of man. But nevertheless, this is one of the reasons why we have the contradiction. I want to tonight try to clear up So is this a true, a real contradiction? No. I'm saying that this is an apparent contradiction. I think the reconciliation for those with faith and for those who study their Bible, the Bible will interpret the Bible. As I say, the unbeliever is not a good interpreter of the Bible because he's biased against the author of the Bible, the references I just gave you. Uh, Romans 8, 7. The other one is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 12 through 16. If you were older when you were converted, I was 26. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the, the heart of flesh by which we understand the word of God. The Holy Spirit inspired this and then he revives us. He, he regenerates us. And so it isn't, it, it, it isn't intellectual. Yes, we use our intellect. He informs our minds, he, but he renews the wills. That's the Holy Spirit. Now, the answer is this, and I don't think it's that difficult. When we have an imprecatory prayer, praying for condemnation, and then we have a gracious prayer, praying for, for forgiveness, the answer, I think, is, is very, very easy to, to reconcile. And the answer is this, is that Christ is praying two kinds of prayers for two kinds of people. He prays for two different things. I want you to think of this. We do this in our own life. Have you not prayed one thing for one person 
and another thing for another person. Have you not prayed for two different things for two different people? So when you come here and, say, and a person says, no, he prays for justice here, and then he prays for mercy here, you can't have that. Well, of course you can. Christ is praying two, he's making two different petitions. God exacts strict justice. God give gracious mercy. Two different petitions. Same Christ, and I'm going to argue two different people. And then I would argue as well at two different times or epochs. But I also want us to think like this. When the unbeliever says you can't pray for these two things because it contradicts one another, that's not true. Not only do we pray different things for different people, answer this question. Have you not prayed different things for the same person but at different times? Have you not? Oh God, forgive them of their sin. Oh oh God, convict them of their sin. Does this make sense? So it's not very easy, it's not very difficult, excuse me, to reconcile. And the reason it's not difficult for faith to reconcile is because our persons are reconciled. We love God. We're not biased against God. We are in favor of him. And so ultimately, I'll send this out in my notes. Ultimately, this is a prayer for Christ, for Christ to exact justice on the the non-elect. And um, only he knows who those uh, numbers are. And that will be um, exacted on the day of judgment. And then this is mercy to the elect sinner. Both sinners, but Christ prays for mercy for one, um, and that he prays for justice for the other. But I'm going to argue this. The, the other reconciliation has to do with the business of time. And when I use time, I mean epoch. In, in right now, in this present, and I often quote it from the book of Ephesians, it calls it this present evil age. Yes, it is a present evil age, but this is the day of grace or the day of mercy or the gospel day. This day where the offer is ubiquitous, it's, it's, it's profuse. The call by Christ through his servants to, to sinners to come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins is now. It's now. So when we see Christ on the cross, Father, forgive them. It's in the day of grace. And that offer goes out. Do I understand that people must ask for forgiveness? They must repent and turn to God for forgiveness. Yes, I've read Luke chapter 13. I understand that. But what you see is the disposition of the Lord Jesus Christ in that epoch now, today. He's ready to receive anyone that repents, anyone that comes to him and says, Thou son of David, he's quick and desirous to forgive. But again, I keep stressing It's in the day of grace. This is the day of mercy. I don't know who the elect are. I don't know who the non-elect are. That's God's business. I tell everyone, we're all sinners. If you come to Jesus, he will forgive you. He will forgive you of all of your sins. The election is God's business. And then if you say to me, but only the elect will come, I understand that. I can teach that. But that... That's, that's the Lord's business. We're not to pre-qualify. We can't see who it is. And so the call is, is profuse. If you, sinner, are a sinner and you repent, he will forgive you. And God in Christ's heart proclaims that in the day of grace or mercy. Now, that's ultimately it finds an expression in the elect sinners. But... The reconciliation is not just a different prayer for different people, it's the different time. 
If you've read Matthew chapter 25, we should read the whole Bible. But you know the parable of the five foolish uh, virgins and the five wise virgins. And the five foolish, they sleep away the day of grace. They sleep away the day of mercy. There's no oil in their lamp. There's no Holy Spirit in their soul. There's no grace. They have no love for Christ. They sleep away all of these calls and offers of forgiveness. And I would argue that these people are probably in the church. They could even write out the sermons, but they never repent. They never take Christ up on his offer to receive forgiveness for their sins ever. There's no grace. And when the day of grace is over, when the bridegroom comes back on the last day, that day of grace or day of mercy, the day of the gospel is forever closed. And then there will be no more offers of mercy, no more offers of forgiveness for the sinner. On that day, that day will begin with judgment day. And after judgment day, those who have died and been found in Christ Jesus will be forgiven. And those who who are found apart from Jesus Christ will receive strict justice. So ultimately, these imprecatory prayers, and I'll send this out in my notes. You see them even in the... um, in the book of Revelation, they ultimately will find their true expression in the eternal estate on those who have died apart from Jesus Christ. So different epochs, a prayer of mercy and an offer of forgiveness now in the day of grace. And then when Christ comes back and the day of grace is over, beginning the eternal estate begins with judgment for those who have not received the grace of God and have not embrace the offer of forgiveness, God will exact strict justice. So it's a different petition. It's on different people. And ultimately, we'll find its expression in different epochs. That's the reconciliation of imprecatory uh, prayers with um, offers of mercy. Uh, In this time, this is why for me, pastorally, and just as a Christian, I am very, 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 very disinclined to making any kind of imprecatory statements against anyone, except if it's someone like Judas in the Bible, that the Holy Spirit writes it. Um, I I may have mentioned this in a previous sermon. I am positive that people that are are inclined to make imprecatory prayers, that they would have made imprecatory prayers against the Apostle Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus they would have asked God to damn Paul to hell because he was an enemy of the church, and he was. But he was a chosen vessel. We do not know. We don't know if that unbeliever across from us is a chosen vessel. Jesus says this, If anyone hears my saying and does not keep them, I do not judge him. I did not come to judge the world, but I came to save the world. That's the difference in the epochs. This is saving time. This is offers of grace and forgiveness time. Yes, I don't deny judgment time. I've preached judgment. I I hope I preach judgment increasingly with a broken heart the longer I'm alive. But Christ didn't come at first to judge. He will come the second time to judge. But that's the reconciliation. Now, let's talk a little bit, maybe for five minutes, on the nature of the prayer of forgiveness. He's praying for... God the Father to forgive his enemies who are crucifying him. 
And so they're physically and spiritually abusing him. And you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 22 in verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was one prayer of Jesus on the cross. And then we look at the words of the, the mockers of Christ in Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. Oh, you say that God loves you? You say that God is your father? You say that you're the chosen Christ? Oh, sure you are. Let's see you get down from the cross and then we'll believe. And so we said from looking at those Psalms, all types of people, Jews, Gentiles, um, uh, religious, non-religious, um, priests and, 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 um, and um, military men, all kinds of people, men and women, were, were mocking Jesus Christ. No one is excluded apart from grace. And so my point with that is this. When Christ prays for forgiveness, it's not for a little bitty little sect or a little bitty sliver of people. This is one of the reasons why not only should we be very gentle to the unbeliever, we should be quick to, to extend forgiveness to all kinds of people. There are people that we just naturally like better than other people. There are people and I, I, who are born with a, a constitution like a, per, a prickly pear. I, I think to some degree... I have had that constitution and God has me in a boot camp to kind of soften the prickles. There are people that we like more than other people. And the people that we like are the people that we love. We're very keen to forgive them. Is this not true? If you love your son and your daughter, and I hope of course you do, or your grandchildren, your son and your daughter sins against you. Because we love them, we are prone to say things like this. Well, I understand your physical and I understand. And so other people that don't love the kids go, you're making excuses. Yes, sometimes folks make excuses, but sometimes not only can we aggravate our sins, we can also mitigate our sins. And so the parent knows the child, and we say, well, the kid's sick as a dog. You, you don't know my kid the way I know him. That's why the kiddo sinned against me. And so we're like Christ. We're desirous to forgive. Even, and I understand that the forgiveness is a, is a communal um, or a relational concept. I do understand. I do understand that the person has to ask. I, I do understand. But Luke chapter 15, the picture of the, running, of the looking and the running father is not God the father. It's God the son. It's God the son that's seeking and saving. It's God the son comes and runs to the profligate. He runs to the prodigal. The prodigal doesn't even get out his words where he receives him back. And, 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 and so when we look at Jesus, he, his heart is to forgive. I do understand there's no forgiveness unless we ask. I get it. But his heart wants to forgive because he loves all kinds of folks. And, and, and I, I, I believe, myself included, we don't love all kinds of folks. We love very few kind of folk. And we usually love the folk that come in our little home. But I think as servants of Jesus, we need to love a lot more people and be ready to forgive all kinds of people. And these people are verbally abusing him. They're physically abusing him in the process of murdering Jesus. Now, I, I have had, as, a, as your minister, and I've been here by God's grace. I, I love my calling. 
almost 22 years, which is a miracle to me. I've had people say, you can't love your enemies, Pastor John. You just can't. It's ridiculous. And you don't know what my enemy has done to me. And beloved, I don't know. There, there have been some awful things that human beings have done to Christians. Awful. And I, do, I don't know. They didn't do worse than we did to Jesus. I do know that. While people were crucifying the Lord of glory, the innocent Lord of glory, he prayed about them. Father, forgive. I had a family member say about another family member, I will never forgive them, ever forgive them. I want to see at God's judgment, God judge this person. And it said shivers down my spine because of Matthew chapter 6. The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer says, it says, as we forgive our trans, we pray it. Forgive us our debts, forgive us our transgressions as we forgive. And then in verses 13 or 14, maybe 15, it says, if you don't forgive, then what? Your father won't forgive you. It's not quid pro quo. But if you don't forgive, it means that you've not been forgiven. You don't have the, the heart. And so our heart should be a heart of love, ready to forgive. Yes, I understand the imprecatory. Yes. Ultimately finds its voice in Christ, ultimately on the day of judgment. Be very careful. We live in the epoch of grace. He prays. And they are abusing him wrongly. And may I say this? Not only has no one ever treated us anywhere near the way that Christ was treated, I I will say this, and you know this is true. Not only are we prone to righteous indignation, we're prone to deceive ourselves as to our own rightness in any given situation. We get like this. That person sinned against me. I'm pure as the driven snow. They are 100% guilty. I'm 100% innocent. And we cannot see the reality of it, even as born-again Christians. And what am I getting at? Man, if the Holy Spirit could show us, you got 50% of that problem. You did it. You were a donkey. You said something mean. You were unkind. You did it. You own it. You can't, I can't say that to anybody. Because what happened? You tell me. But that's, that's a fact. Why did you say that mean thing to me? Because you've been trashing me for the past 20 years. That's why I said it. People say mean things to people that say mean things. People do hurtful things to people that do hurtful things. But we don't see our part in it. Oh God, justice. Oh no, you better pray for mercy because you need it. Oh, I need it. Does that make sense? We vindicate the stuffing out of ourselves. I do too. I don't know. I don't know why they... Say that I'm not very nice because you're being not nice. (laughs) You're not nice, but not Christ. They did it wrongly, and he still prayed, Father, forgive them. This is our Christ. This is the Christian religion. Mercy, grace, forgiveness. This is the essence of our holy faith. You say they don't deserve mercy. They don't deserve, they're guilty. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's what mercy is. That's what mercy is. If they deserve it, that's called justice. The Christian faith is built on mercy. 
guilty people receiving what they don't deserve. Forgiveness. Like our Christ. I'll end with this. Stephen mimics Jesus. While Stephen is being stoned to death for loving Christ, loving people, ministering Christ to people that are hating him, what are they doing to him? They're stoning him. And what does Stephen say? Lord Jesus Christ, don't hold this to their account. They know not what they do. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. This is our Christ. This is our Savior, and we praise God for it. And I pray that as we look to Jesus Christ, we would be incrementally and increasingly conformed into his image, and we would be the most loving, the most patient, the most forgiving, the most merciful people for the glory of God and for the good of this sinner. Amen. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.